0: 50 plus years after civil rights movement why are we still having the same kinds of issues happening you know i mean we've solved a major problem that being with laws that were against people of color blacks and we solved those things in the civil rights you know things that were passed, but why are we still having significant pain points with people of color? And, you know, I'm from an engineering background and done a lot of continuous process improvement, and I just believe if something's not working, then we probably are aimed at the wrong issue. And so if we back up and look at what the issues are, then we can develop strategies to move the situation forward, you know, move the needle forward in a positive way.
1: Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment.
2: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm your co-host, Ben Tapper, and as always, I'm joined by the one and only Matt Burke out of our Northeast office. Hey, Matt.
1: Hey, Ben. Good to be here.
2: Yeah, we had a fun conversation today with a family friend of mine and a pastor in Fort Wayne, Pastor Wallace Butts, talking about a strategy for addressing racial unrest in the United States. And, you know, people may or may not be surprised to know that here at the Center for Congregations, We don't necessarily get a lot of inquiries about handling racial unrest in the U.S. day to day, but I think it's become more frequent. (laughs) So what about your work, maybe even in particular in education, has touched on this topic for you recently?
1: Well, I think it's definitely been a topic of interest because we've held a number of education events on the subject and they've been really well attended and lots of good questions Course, some pushback. But yeah, I don't get as many requests specifically from a congregation saying, Hey, how do we wrestle with this? How do we grapple with this? And then, you know, kind of helping them find resources. But it definitely has been a topic that has resonated. And, you know, it's definitely just, it's in the air. It's just in our culture right now. And something that no matter where you land on your viewpoints on it and your views of CRT or what have you, it's out there in a big way right now. What about for you? Have you encountered anything specific?
2: Nothing too intense, you know, we get the occasional email saying, hey, I can't believe you posted this on the CRG, remove me from your mailing list, things like that. But no, you know, most congregations, I think there was a spike in interest during the summer, early fall of 2020. And that has continued for those that were doing grant programs around anti-racism and racial equity. But since then, I fielded a lot of inquiries about addressing racism specifically Although I have had at least one pastor come to me wanting to know how to diversify his congregation to make it more appealing than just for black folks, right? He wanted to find a way to take his mostly African-American congregation and also make it appealing to white people, Hispanic, Latinx folks. And so that was kind of interesting to me not directly addressing the issue of racial unrest per se, but kind of thinking about how to build and sustain community in similar ways I heard Pastor Butts talking about in our interview.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, over the last, you know, I've been with the center almost eight years now, and probably the most common topic area that touches on this issue would be trying to make a congregation more multicultural. Mm-hmm. And so there definitely has been a desire among some to say, hey, we really want our congregation to look more diverse and to be more diverse. And so, how do we do that? Yeah. And it can be a challenging thing. Definitely.
2: Definitely. There are a lot of variables to keep in place. But I, I mean, at the end of the day, I think this is true both in the interview that our viewers are going to hear in a few minutes and in previous interviews we've done, it seems like this comes back to communication and it comes back to genuine grace and curiosity. Whether you're talking about Mm -hmm. building a broad-based community or just being in relationship with people that you may or may not interact with on a daily basis, some of those core principles seem to remain the same because it's all about relationship at the end of the day.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: So, you know, we have plenty more thoughts on this issue, but- We want y'all to hear this interview and then we'll kind of chat about it on the back end. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Pastor Butts.
1: Welcome back. And we are so pleased to have with us Wallace Butts, who's the lead pastor of Love Church here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. How are you, sir? I am doing well. How are you guys doing? Doing great. it's good to have you here. So Wallace is going to talk to us about something called the L3 movement, listen, learn, and live. And I'm going to mention the mission statement here. It says, L3 is committed to helping influencers connect by honestly listening, learning to understand other perspectives, and overcoming inherent prejudices in order to live together in mutual compassion and respect. And so Ben and I are very interested in hearing a little bit more about this and interested for our audience to learn a little bit more about L3 movement.
0: I am happy to talk about it. It's a passion. So. So when did
1: this start or what did it grow out of?
0: Well, so, you know, during the May 2020 uproar here in Fort Wayne, there was a lot of things going through windows and protests and a lot of people out in the street and things like that. I'm not the kind of guy that follows news cycles really well. You know, I popped my head in and out of newscasts. So I was just oblivious to what was happening around me. Mm -hmm. That Saturday night, I got a text from three of my white friends. And one guy, who' uh, was black, but he's from Grand Cayman, he texted me and they all asked me the same question. Wallace, are you okay? Mm. And the first text I got, I'm like, yeah, last time I checked, I was okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then I get another two or three, and I'm like, okay, call it my lightning, click mine. <laughs> Something's going on that I'm, you know, people need to check on me. And so went to church. You know, preach the message. And then I just turned on the news to kind of see what happened. And then I learned at that time that there had been protests. And actually that Sunday morning, I'd been called by a city official to see if I would come down in solidarity, stand with other black pastors and, you know, decry the violence and everything else. And I declined. Because when I first recognized that something was going on, you know, I just got this, uh, I'll call it a check in my spirit. It's like, you know, I don't have enough information. You know, I don't feel the urge to just jump right out there and defend and all of those things. And so I just took a step back and started prayerfully looking at information and things of that nature. I didn't preach on it for months. I really felt called to understand the issue. And so that's how this all started. So in my prayerful time, my my pursuit, there were some just some questions that I don't think have been asked in a long time that came to mind. You know, one being, you know, 50 plus years after civil rights movement, why are we still having The same kinds of issues happening. You know, I mean, we've solved a major problem that being with laws that were against people of color blacks. And we solved those things in the civil rights, you know, things that were passed. But why are we still having significant? pain points with people of color and you know i'm from an engineering background and done a lot of continuous process improvement and i just believe if something's not working then we probably are aimed at the wrong issue Hmm. and so if we back up and look at what the issues are then we can develop strategies to move the situation forward you know move the needle forward in a positive way so that began this kind of prayerful journey of l3
2: so obviously listen learn and love right yeah, fairly self-explanatory on one level, right. Right. But what's the deeper ask for folks that are engaging in this philosophy?
0: Well, great question. I'll go a little bit into history and then I'll back into where we landed. So that question that arose was, you know, why are we still having the same level of traumatic encounters with people of color and police, law enforcement, but not just law enforcement, you know, hiring decisions and you know communities that are homogenous and things like that. Why is today still as segregated as the day that, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. announced it to the world. You know Sunday morning is still the most segregated hour in our country. And those questions started taking me through that journey. So here's where my history and my study took me. That the first encounter of Blacks from Africa to America happened because of slavery and we were brought here against our will. Right. And that went on for hundreds of years. And then we have a group of people who felt called to step out of their comfort zone and fight for the rights of enslaved black people. And the abolishment of slavery happened. That's a done deal, it's complete. It was perfectly legal you know something that we could tackle from a legal perspective but things in the life of blacks did not change drastically other than we were free on paper and so that began the fight for civil rights the right to vote the right to you know and then at the passing of the the civil rights bill legally that solved that problem and the way that people solved it was through marching and through all sorts of, you know, community activities to bring attention and awareness. Same thing with the abolishment of slavery. People like the Quakers would go to their neighbors and say, look, you know, when you buy sugar from a plantation, you know, even if you don't have slaves, you are propagating the pain of a people. And that influence strategy is what brought about the end and the abolishment of slavery. Same thing happened with the civil rights movement. Civil rights leaders, you know, they enacted this strategy that at the core had violence, but they were not going to enact violence. They simply believed that if the violence enacted against Blacks, could be seen on a national level, then the national perspective would change, and then we could put an end to the laws that, you know, created that. And what I found since the Civil Rights Movement, as I look back and prayerfully study this, is that we continue to try to use the same strategies that we used in the Civil Rights Movement, the marching, the, the protests, and those things to solve what is actually a more complex Issue than those of legal matters where I can say, hey, this is a law, right? The new issue is lodged in a place that you can't litigate, if that makes sense. You can't uh, set a law that tells a man he's going to treat another man right in the privacy of his office or the, the privacy of his home or when he steps out of a police car. You can't set a law for that. It's lodged in a different place. And so, as I began trying to answer that question, so then what, first of all, is the problem? My conclusion might not sit right with everybody else. But my conclusion was that the major problem that we face as people of color and just the community at large, white, black, everybody, is that we tend to focus on racism as the issue. And this does not say that racism is not a problem. It just says that if I design a strategy based on the fact that the person that is causing me conflict is a racist, I'm going to come to some conclusions because racism is a specific track. Racists, you know, they are specific kind of people, right? And if I go down that road and that is not the problem, then all of the solutions i design designed don't solve the actual problem. And so asking, yeah, more questions. So if, if it's not racism, then what's the problem? The problem is, is that we're all inherently prejudiced we all have these biases. It's why we pick the women that we pick. It's why we pick the jobs that we pick. We all have these preferences. You know, We want to be around people that are like us. That's just core to our DNA. But when there are power balances and things that have been set up against a group of people that have put them in an unfair advantage, disadvantage, I should say, or an advantage, then that continues to move on. And the people who are not advantaged or privileged tend to get the short end of the stick often and it's not from the perspective of whites are saying hey i want to you know not give you opportunity i want to you know uh, keep these opportunities to my group and my ethnic you know circle and all of that it's not that that's being said but because it was started from that perspective it's kind of rolling on its own and our inherent prejudices and biases is keeping that moving on and on. The pain, I should say, that comes about as a result of, I would rather work with people that look like me. I would probably frame my employment strategy from the perspective that my team would work better if all of us are homogenous and we have the same likes and all of the, I mean, it's innocent. Although it is detrimental to a people, it is not racist. And so the primary premise is you really can't call a person a racist if they say they're not a racist. You can point to behaviors that look like a racist, right? But if I call you anything that you disagree with, then we have created conflict. If I say you're racist and you're not, then we have created conflict because we're not on the same page. And if I design a strategy because I think you're a racist, then we're not going to get to solving the problems that matter most because you treat a racist a specific way, right? And even to that point, the idea that you and I can't change racist people, I mean, that's lodged in a place that's not on the surface, you know? Now, it can be changed. God can change that person's heart. He's changing hearts all the time. But since we can't change that person to expend all of our energy on a minority, I, I consider racists to be a minority in our country at this point, else we would still be hanging from trees often. If I design my strategies for a small segment of the community, I'm gonna miss out on the opportunity to connect with people who may not know how to move the race conversation and reconciliation forward, but they're certainly not racist. But we tend to design everything with the idea that the problem is racism and races. And so if it's not that, then if it's prejudice, and we all have it, and it's not intended to hurt someone else, then how do we move ahead? And that comes to helping people understand how to value connection over conflict. Now, it's not a thing that we can solve in the political arena either, because by definition, that's divisive, (laughs) you know, we have political parties, it's separation. And and even if I say, you know, for example, all lives matter and somebody else says black lives matter, my political views will keep me locked into an ideology that doesn't allow connection to happen because I'm fighting other things. And so we've moved it out of that sphere. And we said that there are people, I believe God handed us a season where people are honestly, sincerely, Grappling with how do we connect? How do we how do we get away from this conflict? How do we move forward? And again, calling somebody that's willing to come to the table a racist—it's just—it's just wrong. So how do we do it? <laughs> you do it by living empathetically with other people, and, and that's a word that is thrown around a lot but practiced very little. Corporations are spending hundreds of thousands, of millions of dollars, in trying to make a more empathetic <laughs> group, right? And it's as simple, even though this is a complex problem, a complex issue, it's a simple solution. And that's why I think we strain at it. Because the simple solution is that if you and I don't agree, if I would at least listen to your position, not with the idea that I'm developing an idea on how to answer you so my position is heard, if I'll empathetically listen to your view of what's going on, And at the same time, you pause and listen to my side. What that allows us to do is to connect, even if we still disagree, because that's what most arguments say. If I listen to you, then that means I agree with you and I don't agree with you. So I don't want to listen to you. I'm going to listen long enough so that I can put my things in or put my points of view. But if we do some honest listening and we come to the table saying, I may not agree with you, but you are telling me you were hurt, and so I have to respect that. You're telling me that this is a problem, so I have to respect that by understanding it. So when you listen, that gives you the opportunity to move to the next stage, and that is learn. Let's take Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, and that was a big thing in the church where Blacks were saying Black Lives Matter, and there was this retort, this automatic retort of All Lives Matter. You know, Learning says, Okay, I understand you're in pain. Listen to you. Instead of retorting with the amount of information I've gotten from my newsreel, my circle of influence, if I ask one simple question, what does all lives matter or what does Black Lives Matter mean to you? Not in the global context of, you know, I would have people say when I said that, I would have people say, but they're a Marxist racist, you know. It's like I didn't even know they were Marxist and racist. I had no clue about their political and ideological stances. I'm just saying I have a son who was trying to walk down the street in a neighborhood where we built our first home with our money. We were one of the first people on the block and he's stopped by a police officer just because he's black. He was not anybody's window, (laughs) you know, he was not doing anything illegal, he was out of place. Now, at that time, I called that racist, but now I look and I see that that guy had a perspective about people of color that informed the behavior of stopping and investigating him. So instead of just going off of the information that I currently have, or my favorite political or religious or whatever ideology, simply asking a question, what does that mean to you? allows me to learn your perspective. And then that learning allows us to walk together, live together. So those are the three L's. You know, was a kid of, I'm a preacher, so that was a little bit of a long way to go into what the three L's are in the L3 movement. Listen, if I listen empathetically to you, then I can then position myself to learn from your perspective the things that are causing you pain and harm. And then that gives us a platform, a foundation to walk together and connect rather than have conflict. So that's the L3 movement. None of that movement was born.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for the background as well into that. I think it's helpful to hear the thought process that got you there. You know, at the center, we have worked a lot and heard a lot from congregations, especially white congregations that like you witnessed the racial unrest that we had a couple summers ago and decided, okay, we have to do something about this now. And they have tried to do more of that listening, tried to do more of that learning so they could expand their perspective. You know, and from where I sit, I would make the argument that, yeah, I love the idea. Listen, learn and live. Okay. This is more for our lightly melanated folks <laughs> than it necessarily is <laughs> for the rest of us to have a bit more melanin, right? Not that, People of color don't also need to listen at times. We do, but.
1: It's okay, Ben. You can say it's for me, it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering if Pastor Butts would agree with this Because, you know, my thinking is I grew up knowing the perspectives of conservative folks Knowing the perspectives of white people Understanding So, like, you turn on Fox News I can explain to you exactly why people are thinking and talking like that I, I know it I lived it, right? The converse isn't always true, though Those people may really not understand Why I'm saying what I'm saying, right? So I don't know that I need to do a whole lot more listening Because I could tell them what they believe Maybe better than they'd know it sometimes So... That's my point of view. I'm wondering if you would push back on that, though.
0: A little, just a little. Okay. I think I agree with your perspective, but just a little. And let me go at it a little bit of a different way. When I was in engineering, there was a term that we use called fundamental attribution error. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but so let me give you an example. Of course.
2: Why would I be familiar with that? Huh? <laughs> so why would I be familiar with that? Uh, of <laughs>
0: <laughs> you are in actuality and experience, okay. not just in you know, understanding, right? Gotcha. So let's say you're driving down the street, and someone speeds up, cuts you off, and zooms off. Your response to that person is probably would probably be beat out if you know. <laughs> <But> yes. <laughs> I mean, both of you guys. I mean, you know, we. we Not fit for network TV. <laughs> and, you know, and that, Ooh, jerk, or you, you know, and me included, Pastor yeah. Butts included. You know, we have that, you jerk, you know. But let's just say we could zoom into that person's back window who just cut us off, just created conflict in us, just set us in an emotional state that is going to take some time to unwind, right? Let's say we can zoom into their back seat. And you peer into their backseat and what you see into the backseat is their wife laid out pregnant and in labor. How does your perspective change? Yeah. They're no longer a jerk. They're someone that you would probably speed past them, get in front of their car and start honking at all of the other cars to get them to their destination. Sure. That's what a fundamental attribution error is. We attribute bad motives to someone's character without having enough information. And quite likely, if we have more information, our perspective would change drastically with more information, right? With the information that, no, you're not a jerk, you had a crisis that you needed to resolve. That's what a fundamental attribution area is. So oftentimes, we have addressed the race issue from that same perspective, that we are attributing character flaws and character and bad motives to people based on our limited information give you another. For example, I was at a funeral of a very large congregation. The pastor passed away, and he was having his funeral and wake at another large, affluent, and white congregation, and I'm paying my respects because I know him. I'm the only Black that I could see in this long line, this long sea of people paying respect to the family, and I'm inching along. I say hello to the people in front of me. I say hello to the people behind me. Conversation falls flat shortly after that. You know, maybe they thought I was a thug. I don't know what the, you know, what their perspectives were. Mm-hmm. But in that process, the pastor of that church is watching this. He walks across the room, he stands beside me and he holds a conversation with me, maybe five or ten minutes. Because in my mind, what I'm thinking is he sees that I'm the lone one in this you know, sea of whiteness and he wants to encourage me, be with me or whatever, you know, the conversation, you know, five or so minutes into it, he stops and he turns to me and he says, you know what, you are very articulate. Now the fundamental attribution error would say, you're saying that because I'm a black man and black men are not supposed to be as articulate as me. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Right. Then I would attribute what he just said to the wrong motivation. Sure. Now, before learning the listening, learn, and live concept, I've always had it in my spirit. Instead of listening to that verbal, you know, (laughs) mess up, so to speak, you know, that we call that microaggression from the Black Mm -hmm. perspective, a Mm -hmm. microaggression. I recognized that he wanted to be with me. He was coming to do me a service. He was there to create connection with me. And he said something that he did not realize would offend me.
2: Yes.
0: I have two options. I can call him a jerk. I I can go at him like, you know, he just cut me off on the highway, or I can recognize that he extended himself past what he had to, needed to, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So the listening, learning, and living process allows us to interrogate those things that happened to us with a different set of glasses, a different view
2: Absolutely. Yeah. One more thing on that specific example. So I think had I been in your shoes, I would walk away from that conversation. I would do what you did and still understand that yeah he still said it because in his experience he's not really expecting this is he intentionally being hurtful absolutely not right so to me i guess both can be true i can still offer empathy and be like yeah this is coming from a probably a racially charged place but i'm going to let it slide right now
0: yeah but we know when that racist is present. We do. I mean, yeah. we don't have to guess. When I came out of Job Corps, I did electrical wiring and I worked for a company in Chesapeake, Virginia. You know, I mean, that's kind of the birthplace of <laughs> slavery. <right>? And I <laughs> yeah. worked with this guy that was, in my estimation, racist. He did everything he could to let me know he didn't like me as a black man. Mm. There was no question about it. And so I can call that guy a racist okay? because he has demonstrated that for me. But the guy who is really about trying to connect with me, I am supposed to be able to look past that offense and be compassionate with him and embrace the compassion that he was trying to give to me. And when, when we do that, we get to a place of understanding and it allows us to move forward. Because if I respond negatively out of everything that I was taught, Everything I was taught before I became a pastor of an interracial congregation, before I became the guy that was almost always the only Black man in any setting that I was in, before I began to know people who were white, I was the guy who made the wrong motivation and character assassination. That was me. I was taught to do that, right? Self-preservation, whatever it is, right? But with that little bit more perspective, that there are good men and women of another race who want to see me, you know, thrive. That was illustrated by those texts. You know, when those guys texted me, they were asking two things. Wallace, did you go down to the <laughs> the protest and get beat up by a cop or Wallace, you know, do we need to come bail you out? You know? Yeah. And then the third thing that I found that they were asking me is help me understand this. Yeah. Let me understand. Consequently what we constantly hear, I've heard, throughout this time of racial unrest, go learn yourself. Don't ask me to, you know, to help you understand. And that is, to me, that's unfruitful. You know, if you're going to ask me about my struggle, that is demonstrating your concern and compassion. And so we have to take that, not attribute, because a racist is not going to ask me that, period. Mm -hmm. They don't Mm -hmm. care. And so we have to start living with people in an understanding way as with that. And we're trying to get people to do that with L3.
1: Yeah. And really kind of an observation or a clarification. It sounds to me like it's a moving from the general to the particular, that someone may say something that has a certain connotation and we can ascribe a whole host of background to that comment, that statement, that issue that may not be applicable to that person. And so you're actually asking more so of that individual that you're engaging with, what does this mean to you? Because, Ben, your point was well taken that, you know, you can watch Fox News, you can understand what the pundits say, the opinions and those thoughts. But that's a separate thing from the person who's in front of you saying the same thing, because they may not understand or they may very well understand everything that's coming along with that. So it's trying to understand that person, not necessarily the idea that you think they might be espousing. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, that is definitely accurate. And here's a, a clarification point to that, too. That's perfectly accurate. But here's a clarification point, and that is a person that understands they are not going to regurgitate Fox News or CBS or NBC or any political pundit because it is about the person in front of me. It's this person right here. It's not his political ideology. It's not his, you know, it's none of that. It is this person in front of me. You just said something that my antenna should have gone up about. You're in pain. You're having struggle. You are feeling rejected, neglected, whatever. Our natural Christian response, our natural human response should be, tell me more about that. You know, how does that make you feel? You know, Mm -hmm. have I ever done that? I mean, it should be our very natural response. But our political ideologies and all of these other things, they feed us perspectives. And because we agree with an ideology, we buy oftentimes lock, stock, and barrel everything that comes out of that camp. And so then... You know, somebody who you're maybe loosely in relationship with is expressing some pain point and your mind goes back to what was said in that camp and how they've articulated. And they've designed certain statements to kind of answer those things. And so what we do need to do, and that's the point, is we need to recognize that if I'm in the presence of someone with pain, regardless of their pain, then God has placed me there to be an agent of being present with them. I mean, I'm not even talking about solving their problem because most of the time feeling understood is more valuable than being agreed with hmm. and being understood causes us to calm down and it causes the defense mechanisms. You know, and we become more transparent and more vulnerable. It, it sounds simple, but when that happens, we connect. And that's what's not happening at race, we are not connecting, and everybody's trying to have their way, and we're getting worse than better.
2: So I'm gonna ask a question, yeah. and then I'm gonna explain why I'm asking. So while I'm explaining, I'm giving you time to think. You ain't gotta listen Thank to the explanation, right? <laughs> so so uh, here's the question. Then my explanation will come. You mentioned that you are a pastor in interracial congregation, right? Yeah. And so for those in the congregation, there might be people of color, right? I'm wondering how you encourage them to live into this model while also protecting their energy, guarding their heart, and protecting themselves, right? And I ask that because I think there are times where engaging in that conversation with someone, even if they're asking, hey, explain this to me, and they're coming from the best well-intentioned place. If you are dealing with this barrage of societal racism and oppression or just microaggressions all day long, like that wears in your spirit and if they're not coming from the best place, then you risk entering a conversation to explain yourself. And then they might just retort and attack and you're leaving more wounded than when you came in. So, so how do folks practice this well while also protecting themselves?
0: That's a great question. You know, How do I practice this and protect myself? You know, The reason I started with the fundamental attribution error, because at the end of the day, when that scenario happens, the person passes me off. I can be left with the baggage of what I think that person was intending to me, Or I can dismiss that baggage and I can ascribe anything to that scenario. I can say, oh, he was in a hurry. Oh, his wife's in the backseat giving birth. I can ascribe and I have to do that because I don't know unless that person declares to me, I don't know their intention. And I can ask their intention. Oh, that kind of sounded a little abrasive from a racial perspective. Were you trying to hurt my feelings or were you trying to go at me? You know, as opposed to, you know, you're racist for saying something, you know. So that's one way to protect yourself. You can simply say to yourself, I don't have enough information to aim that person's behavior, make them a bad character. So maybe they're having a bad day. We do this in sales all the time. Sales coach, you know, you go to a sales meeting and it doesn't go the way you want. You say, oh, is there an issue not mine that helps you keep moving, right? And that may sound like a cop-out to some, but again, it's not like the way we're handling it today, the aggressive manner, the retaliation, it's not like that's working you fast forward to, you know, again, from the civil rights movement today, we're still having the same kinds of issues. So what we're doing is not working. So why not embrace something good? So you protect yourself in that way. You give that person the benefit of the doubt, they're having a bad day or whatever. And you remind yourself who you are. This person doesn't know me, so they cannot add value to me. Now, if it's somebody that does know you, that means you have relationship and you have something built that you can walk on. You can walk across that bridge and say, you know, you may not know this, you know, he's given the benefit of the doubt. But when you say that this is how it makes me feel and that creates and fosters even more connection and you give the other person the opportunity to say, Oh man, I, I never intended that to come across, you know, my apologies. And when we do that, we create, again, connection and understanding happens, relationship grows, and we move forward, right? And so just teaching people basic relational conflict strategies that they can use right there in the moment. You protect yourself when you give that other person the benefit of the doubt. You do. And you protect your own heart at the exact same time. And so arming people with those skills are important. Good question.
2: Thank you. Keep that positive feedback coming. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> have you been able to expand this outside of your congregation at all and in partnership, especially with any other white congregations? And if so, what's that process been like?
0: So that's kind of a the part of your first question. And it was the congregation aspect. So I stayed silent until I could have enough confidence of where I stood, first of all, apart from my ideologies, where mm-hmm. I stood. And then I began to speak to my congregation. And so as I taught my congregation, I explained the whole L3 concept before we developed it to my congregation. And I gave them an actionable step. Mm. Uh, At the end of that, you know, the congregation, the church bought uh, $25 gift certificates to a local restaurant and it was on a father's day. So we brought all of the fathers up front and we said, look, you are not going to create connection unless you have relationship. So gave each man a card and I said, look, take somebody who doesn't look like you out and ask the questions that you've heard today, have those transparent conversations. So it was actionable and it was an opportunity for them to practice what they had just heard, You know, helping them to feel safe by understanding that oftentimes people don't mean harm, they just say things that they've heard and whatever, right? So that's one way to do that. What we've done is for the past year from an L3 perspective, we've met often, I've taught it at local college, I taught it in the high school or arena, but uh, it was one of the neatest experiences I ever had. There was an interracial group of junior high and high schoolers. And I was asked to talk about two of the topics I'm very passionate about, you know, business and, and now this L3 thing. And I talked my best talk on entrepreneurialism, you know, and. When it came to the racial thing, that's where all of the questions came up. And that's where all of the comments. And I found these kids were hungry to have this conversation. They just didn't feel like they had safe places to do it, right? That's also my experience when I connect with an individual one-on-one. I sit down and I launch into this concept of listen, learn, and live, and that we have the wrong perspective and strategy. And people feel safe. They say, well, let me tell you about this. And they give me these stories where they were misunderstood, or where they were hurt by a conversation, you know. And so Mm -hmm. it really does give you an opportunity to have a, a safe conversation. But I haven't done it in a church other than my own just yet. And we're at this new stage of forming this. So we've developed some materials to take it into churches and to take it into corporate settings because our primary focus is on influencers. Oftentimes we start these kinds of movement in what we consider the grassroots, right? We go from there and then up. But we've actually taken some cues from the strategy that the Quakers did when they talked with business people and people of affluence and resources, and we helped them to see the concept. And then they then took it into their area of influence and it spread that way. So that's kind of about major, you know, we've been after corporations and things like that. Again, we're not aiming at the races. I mean, no change can happen if you put your attention on the most negative group of people. You know, there's a, a strategy that talks about how you develop change in an organization. And they said in any strategy for change, you're going know, to find one or three people, someone who is an early adopter, you know, and they're all in and ready to go. You're going to find somebody that's on the fence. You know, they don't know if they believe what you're selling or, you know, what. And then you're going to find somebody that is absolutely not for it. What we tend to do is we spend our time on the person not for it. And so we never get progress or have an impact. If you spend your time with the people that are ready to go, those are the people then who will take your message and then bring the second group on board, those who are on the fence. And you have much more influence and impact from that perspective. And so that's the strategy we're taking with L3.
2: I like that. And if you need to get into Sweetwater, I mean, we might be able to hook you up. So just let us know.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do it, man. <laughs> Do it. Yeah, I believe everybody you know needs to hear this message. Seriously. I also believe from my understanding of what I felt like the Lord shared with me that we could resolve the conflict that people of color experience because of prejudice in our lifetime. Hmm.
2: That it's not a
0: 20 year, you know, process that there are influence strategies. There are models that are already out there to get a message into the hearts and hands of people. We do it every election cycle. You know, we grassroots it, we knock on doors, we pass it on, that we could solve this problem in our lifetime as long as we're aimed at the right problem if we're not aimed at the right issue we can go on forever and not make any significant impact
1: yeah and i'm really glad that you asked that last question ben because we have an opportunity to hear more about this wallace is coming to online to indiana We've got February 22nd, March 1st, and March 8th, three consecutive Tuesdays, where he's going to expand and explore more of this way of going about listening, learning, and living. And there'll be time for breakouts. There'll be time for conversation. So if you're hearing this before February 22nd of 2022, we encourage you to go to centerforcongregations.org workshops and sign up for these three sessions. We do have limited availability because it's gonna be in Zoom meeting. If you miss the first one, but you still wanna come, we will be recording the prior session so you can catch up and then come to sessions two and three or even just session three. But would really encourage you to do that as we seek to really think about these issues and how to learn to live better together. So where can people find out more information about L3 or about you? Do you have any social media or any places where they can go online?
0: Yeah, right now our website is being built. The website is l3movement.com. And we're in the process of building that. They can email me at connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, at l3movement.com, right? And send questions and emails. I'd love to answer some of the questions that people have, you know, because it really is right now we're at a listening stage. L3 is not saying that we have the answer for solving it. We're saying that we have the connection to get us to the place where we can start building, you know, the strategies to solve it. And so this is kind of a, you know, we're L3-ing even our launch, you know, we're listening, Mm -hmm. right? And so we're doing surveys and things of that nature. So love to hear feedback, you know, even from this podcast about questions and things like that at connect at L3movement.com.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Wallace, for your time. Really looking forward to having you come and speak in those events in February and March, and looking forward to joining with this movement and seeing where it can go.
0: Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, Great questions and comments, and I'm looking forward to seeing what the
1: Lord does at the workshop. All right. Well, thanks so much, and next up, we'll talk resources. Okay, that was our interview with Reverend Wallace Butts of Love Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and L3. Ben, what are some things that it sparked in you? What are some takeaways from the conversation? As
2: you probably noticed, based on the questions I was asking, I was really curious about how that strategy of listen, learn, and live might be different based upon if you're a person of color or if you're white. And I was curious about it because... I think in Christian circles especially, maybe, I don't know if it's more so an evangelical versus mainline, but in Christian circles, I have heard some refrain of, we just need to have more conversations. We just need to have more empathy, right? And whenever I hear that, I think, okay, you're making this way too simplistic. That is... That's not Mm going to fix the issue. we got to be able to talk about these hard things and address the roots of some of these things. And, you know, I know Pastor Butts, right? His son is my best friend. I've known him for a while. I know that he thinks deeply and pretty critically about things. And so I was curious, not knowing much about this particular philosophy, how far he would deviate from that Christian typical, let's all sit down and have dinner perspective. And so it was really interesting to hear him kind of articulate not only how he got to that visioning and that philosophy, but... For him to be able to dig into practically, okay, this is what it might mean. These are the ways it might play out in real life examples. These are ways it has played out in my own life, and I thought that was really helpful to get both the high level philosophical understanding as well as that tangible, practical understanding of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it was interesting because I could literally see your discomfort with some of the, <laughs> some of the things that he was talking about, and I really appreciated your questions and his clarification. Because I think, you know, there is the need to think about this at a high level, a systemic level. You know, we need to think about how race is an issue. But clearly his point is also valid that it's also just a human being issue. Yeah. That we need conversation. We need empathy, compassion, and understanding. And I think... The difference there is one of the things that I tried to articulate in the interview itself is the general versus the particular. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting to me about his system is that so many people ask, what can I do? Because systemic racism, you think about how there are racist ideas potentially embedded in our culture and in our legal systems and things like that, and your average person can feel very powerless against Mm -hmm. those things. But what he's saying is these are things that you can do on a daily basis in your life to listen, to learn, and to live together. Yeah. So I think that's one of the really cool things about this is anyone listening to the interview hopefully can take away some aspects of what they can do practically on a day-to-day basis.
2: Yes, definitely. And, you know, I don't know if he's going to build this out or if their love church is going to build this out as part of their model, but that listen, learn, live principle is something you can apply to any sort of civic engagement, right? If you listen enough and are willing to learn enough, you can understand the like legal obstacles that people of color might face in your community. You can understand the systemic barriers that might be happening where you live. And then you can figure out, okay, how do I take action? And so I think there's some versatility to it. And that is really exciting to me.
1: Yeah, it's almost like the prior step, right? Mm -hmm. That you want to do something, but the prior step is just understanding. And so that just takes listening first and listening with an empathetic ear. And one of the things that I appreciated, Ben, with seeing some of your discomfort with what he was talking about, I've reflected a lot on how we prescribe someone else needing to be loving, empathetic, or compassionate. And we hear those words, and depending on the circumstance or the situation, if someone has been enmeshed in trauma and you're telling them, well, you just need to forgive and you need to love like Jesus loved— or someone who's been on the receiving end of racial injustice. And you say, well, you just need to be more empathetic and compassionate and you need to listen. And realizing that it's really hard to prescribe that to others. But I think sometimes we do that instead of saying, I need to be the one to show the empathy, to show the compassion and to listen and to not have myself in the center of this conversation. Yeah. And so it's kind of a, a weird logical puzzle, <laughs> that we Mm -hmm. talk about needing to love and be empathetic and compassionate. And that message needs to be out there. But at the same time, it's for Matt to do that. It's for me to be the one to take down my defenses, to listen, to be compassionate, to be empathetic. And, you know, I can say to other people, it's a good idea. But when my defenses go up because someone's not being empathetic or compassionate, that's the wrong response, right? Because I'm the one who needs to be de-escalating, taking down my own defenses. And so remembering that while we talk about it as a prescriptive thing that other people should do, we have no control over that. The only thing we have control over is that happening in our own hearts and in our own lives. And I just think that's a nuance that's really important to make explicit.
2: I think you bring up a great point. It has to start with self. And that's not I think, stressed often enough, but I love that you were thinking about that because it is ultimately about de-escalation. You get into these topics, these scenarios, and everything is really charged, you know, for good reason, I think. But if we can de-escalate, then we are able to remain open to learning and growth. And that's what this is about, right? We have a system that has stood as long as it stood because not enough of us are learning and adapting and changing, you know? And I think from Pastor Butt's perspective, he would say, you know, maybe I don't want to put words in his mouth, but what I kind of heard him saying was maybe as marginalized communities, we haven't adapted our techniques of resistance enough or we haven't adapted to the actual problem enough. And on the other hand, for people that aren't people of color, for white folks, they haven't adapted enough to learn that would allow that mindset shift, which would then you know, kind of precede a behavioral shift, and and that behavioral shift would shift how communities are structured, how relationships are formed, it would impact segregation. So again, this seems like he's speaking from his analytical mind, finding what the problem might be at its simplest root, and then figuring out how to address it and tap into it. And so I, I appreciated hearing that analysis come out of him from his engineering background.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the great thing about it, too, is that this system addresses not just issues of race or ethnocentrism, but it also just addresses being a good human being. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. That, you know, any kind of conflict with two parties in a fully white congregation and you've got two parties that are arguing over something this is a good system to be able to listen with empathy, to communicate, and to try to understand the other person's perspective, to de-escalate the situation and to try to come to some kind of resolution. Yeah. And it just goes back to me, there was so much of what he was talking about that it's like, it's just being a good human being.
2: <laughs> and these are ways
1: that we can very practically do that. So one of the key things for me coming out of kind of a Western enlightenment mindset of, you know, there's objective truth One of the biggest turning points for me was understanding that even if I'm right about the objective truth of a given situation, that doesn't mean that I walk all over somebody else's feelings about that situation, that their feelings, regardless of the facts, their feelings are true and are valid for them. And if I don't engage with them, I'm just brushing it aside and I'm not listening and I'm not treating them the way that they need to Mm. be treated. So even if I'm 100 percent right, which, you know, we all, of course, believe we're 100 percent right all the yep. time and we all should know better that we're not. But even if I'm correct about the situation, that doesn't give me the right to say you shouldn't feel this way. Yep. Feelings are things that should be validated. And in that validation, you can at least try to see where someone's coming from, how they're seeing the situation differently, how they see it different than you do. And you can at least engage them on that level. And as he mentioned, I think, in the interview, when someone feels heard, then it tends to de-escalate their emotions and their defenses. Mm -hmm. And that's a key step. And that was a key step for me of, yeah, I may be right, but that doesn't mean that I can say your emotions are not valid. Yeah, Of course your emotions are valid. And I need to understand and engage those.
2: Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it seems like this philosophy is about – asking someone else what their experience of a thing is right and then trying to learn and understand Mm -hmm. that and i think maybe in the process of doing that we become more aware of what our own experience is more aware of where we're conflating our feelings with what is actually factually happening Mm -hmm. and then we can kind of all learn together and come to some sort of hopefully more holistic understanding of what we're experiencing
1: yeah absolutely Well, we hope you got as much out of that conversation as we did. I definitely took away a lot from the conversation, but we're gonna go ahead and turn our attention to resources, more resources around this topic. So Ben, what have you got for us?
2: Yeah, I brought a resource from Mennonite Church USA. And for those that don't know, that's the denomination that I'm affiliated with and that I do pretty regular work with. And this resource is from September. It's a blog post by Alyssa Bennett-Smith. And she's talking about nonviolent communication and cultivating empathy. And I think it's really important I like the concept of nonviolent communication because it's a way for us to take, at least for those that are committed to nonviolence, to take that general framework and apply it to a specific area of our life, like how we're communicating in relationships. And so she's kind of offering just a short reflection on what it means to communicate nonviolently, especially when we are in positions of conflict, whether that be in our general relationships at home or conflict that is arising in our congregations. She focuses on reframing, separating, and questioning. And so I think it's just a quick resource, maybe a two, three-minute read at most, and it offers some practical tips on how to communicate nonviolently and empathetically in love.
1: Yeah, I had not heard of nonviolent communication, and I actually checked out a different resource that you had brought to the CRG on this, and it's a really, really intriguing concept, and I think dovetails really well with what Reverend Walls was talking about.
2: I agree, and I think we might have mentioned this on the podcast before, but what I like about nonviolent communication is that it's not a really complex concept, right? It's actually fairly simple, and that makes it easier to adapt and apply to your life. So, I'm glad you appreciated it because I appreciate it too. Uh, what do you have for us today, though, Matt?
1: So I've got a YouTube video of a webinar called "Empathy and Anti-Racism," and it's from the Chaplaincy Innovation Lab. So this is definitely speaking into a bit of a religious context, and the person presenting is Simran Singh, who is Sikh, S-I-K-H. So not S-I-C-K, but S-I-K-H a specific religion out of the East, and talking about his life experiences growing up in Texas as a part of that religion, and then also his time in New York, and just ways of empathy being a means by which we can be anti-racist. And so it's a really good entree and introduction into this topic just from someone's life experiences, and I think, I think folks will appreciate it.
2: And I love that you brought this because I think it's an opportunity for folks to learn from a viewpoint that they probably don't hear regularly— And that feels really in line with the spirit of L3 that Pastor Butts was bringing. So I really appreciate that. So I know that when we started doing these segments, we would bring two or three resources and we've shortened it, but you can find plenty of other resources on these topics on the CRG. You can go to thecrg.org and search anti-racism links, communication links, non communication links. There's a plethora of resources, literally hundreds of resources for you to explore to your heart's content. So check out thecrg.org to do a deeper dive into whatever resources might interest you.
1: Yeah, just a reminder that Reverend Butts is going to be presenting on this very topic and some education events for the Center for Congregations online. So if you're listening to this, you can access it. And we starting on February 22nd. You can find those at centerforcongregations.org slash workshops. And even if you miss the first one, if you're listening to this podcast episode later on, we will be recording them and you can catch up on them. Also, he gave his email address. We'll make sure to put that in the show notes, and he would be more than happy to speak with you if you want to reach out to him. He's just a great guy, and if you want to have a conversation about this topic, I'm sure he would be willing and able to do that. Absolutely. He is a great guy.
2: Fun, too. We also want to thank the Lily Endowment for its generosity. They allow us to do the great work that we do here at the Center for Congregations, and we really appreciate that. So shout out to the endowment for the support you offer us.
1: We also want to thank you, listener, because chances are you are part of a congregation and you're doing really important work in your community and in your congregational context. And our work would not exist without your work, and we're here to support you. So thank you for what you do for the folks in your congregation and your community, and thanks for listening. We would love for you to give us a five-star rating and review. That's the best way for others to find this podcast. If you think it's helpful, you can give us a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening. And that's really helpful to expand our reach and our ability to help others.
2: And please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at thecenterforcongregations.org. That's where you can stay up to date on podcast episodes, education events, and resources that we're dropping. And, you know, last but certainly not least, we really want to thank the listener who's provided 17 downloads in Wyoming, Michigan. Frankly, I've never heard of Wyoming, Michigan, didn't know it existed, but I'm glad it does because we are glad you exist and that you're supporting the podcast. So if you have questions or suggestions, email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org with Wyoming in the subject line, and we'll know it's you. Shout out Wyoming. (laughs) Whoop, whoop. (laughs) I mean, you know, regular Wyoming's cool too. So I hear. Never been there. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast and for joining Matt and I in all of our tomfoolery. We appreciate you and we look forward to joining you again whenever the next episode drops.
1: (laughs) And we will welcome you warmly with more tomfoolery. All right. Peace. Thanks, everybody.